This is the Women's Agenda podcast, part of the Agenda Media Network. It's your guide to the latest stories published on Women's Agenda and some of the key conversations on how we live and work. Hello and welcome to the Women's Agenda podcast. My name is Angela Priestley and I'm the co-founder of Agenda Media, which is the publisher of Women's Agenda. I am here in the studio with Georgie Dent, our contributing editor on Women's Agenda. Hello. And on the phone elsewhere in the city is Shivani Gopal. First, actually, this is your second appearance on the Women's Agenda podcast. We had you in a past life and a past um, iteration of this podcast, Shivani. Yes, I'm lucky enough, and I think it's actually my third time. Your third on the Women's Agenda podcast. Okay, so third time lucky, hopefully. And Shivani is the founder and CEO of the Remarkable Woman, and also the co-founder and CEO of Upstreet. So she brings a lot of expertise and insights to this podcast. So thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Okay, so on today's agenda, we are talking trad wives and whether we all want to return to the 1950s, and we can explain what that actually means. Uh, We're also talking about sexism in the startup sector, motherhood in professional tennis, and a number of other topics that have us talking this week. But first, to uh, trad wives. So last week I had a few things pop on my social media about trad wives and using this hashtag was it trad wife or trad wives or what do you trad recall? wife i think it was trad traditional wife. wife well i didn't realize it was a traditional wife i thought it was about being a tradie or something that oh, i read yeah, into I it the see. wrong yep. yeah i thought that too yeah okay. yeah i can see how you so so not so what that. are you trading oh no i like as in a tradie i thought it was like empowering women in as tradies that that's what i thought it could be but no it's 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 not. It's it's short for tradi- traditional wife. But the way it came off my social media feed where I really got an appreciation for what it actually meant and I started actually clicking into the relevant stories was when a large media outlet posed the question, um, well, they basically stated in a tweet that hordes of women are calling for a return to 1950s-style marriages where husbands always come first and dinner is on the table by 6.30 every night. At which point I thought that the former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, (laughs) had started moonlighting as an editor at News Corp. Well, that's always a possibility, isn't it? Well, it is. He's looking for a job, so... Exactly. Possible. And it's not out of the realm of possibility. He has made a number of comments over the years about traditional wives, the housewives of Australia doing the ironing. So I I honestly think he could have written that. Yes. Yes. Shivani, do you think that hordes of Australian women are looking for a return to 1950s marriages? Hell no. I don't think they are. And if, if anyone is, I certainly haven't heard of them. In fact, when I saw this headline, I thought, Yeah, I wonder how many men work at those uh, media organisations and uh, have they actually titled hordes of women in possible wishful thinking that they would want us to do so? I I certainly couldn't see that. Um, And, uh, you know, it's it's crazy to think that, you know, women would want to go back to a 1950s-style thing. And if anything, if, you know, if people do, you know, men and women do want to sort of go back to traditional times, it's probably more of a love language thing more so than anything where you want to, you know, have actions and, you know, take care of your significant other, um, but certainly not all of the baggage and uh, disempowerment that comes with being a 1950s wife. I also, I think what's interesting is, and this is not 
a new concept at all. I mean, um, you know, Annabelle Crabbe's book, The Wife Drought, covered fairly comprehensively the fact that when there are two people working in a household, there is a whole lot of stuff that doesn't happen if there isn't someone in the home. And so I can certainly see why for a lot of people, men and women, there would be appeal in there being somebody who was at home keeping the sort of home fires burning and making all sh- making sure all of that stuff happened. Um, but I think to sort of say that there are these hordes of women out there wanting a return to that is it seems quite um, unrealistic to me um, that there are a whole lot of women out there pining for that. Yeah, and I think it also the question maybe a little bit opportunistic as well. It's an avenue to get people arguing with each other over... The issue. I mean, when you look at the examples that have been cited, um, I think it comes back to a BBC documentary on the issue, which I, I haven't seen, so I can't talk to, but I've seen um, various people quoted from that documentary. And there are a number of, number of women living in the UK who feature in that documentary and talk about their lifestyles and <clears throat> how they like to spoil the men in their lives and they like to make sure everything is in order at home and there, so there was a, a there is something to draw on there, and but the thing is that they are also posting a lot of this information on social media. They're publishing books. They look like they are possibly influencers and making money out of it as well. There are businesses that mm. are coming up out of this. Mm. So, are they disempowered or are they actually empowered in a way to to live this way and to um, have the privilege and the money, I guess, to be able to do this and then to also have the power to start a business on the side that promotes their work. Well, exactly, because, I mean, in the true 1950s sense, you would not, you know, the wife did not have extracurricular activities for which she earned money, which presumably women who have set up um, businesses, even as sole traders, have got that financial independence. I think that um, probably if you were to interview particularly working women in Australia and asked what they wanted, I am pretty sure that having help at home potentially from their partner, I I would sort of hazard a guess that that would be the number one place they'd really like help to come from because we see consistently that the unpaid work, not just caring for small children or elderly relatives, but the unpaid housework is still disproportionately um, performed by women. And Mm. I think that rather than women saying, I would desperately like to return to a world in which I earn no money and have no agency but I get to do housework all day, Mm. I think probably what they'd really like is a more equitable equitable distribution of responsibilities on the home front. Yeah, a world of oh, less absolutely. overwhelm, perhaps. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. And I, I, I think if you, you know, if you think about it that way, um, what, you know, what's so important is, um, is just taking note of the, of the words that these women are saying as well, if, if they are saying, look, we want to go back to a 19, you know, 50s type of, um, you know, housewife style, uh, you know, environment. You know, again, it says you both pointed out, there's actually a lot of productivity that's coming out of that by way of, you know, financial benefits, by way of influence, if they are then promoting businesses out of that. And that's great. So it's so important that they are careful with their language and not actively embracing subservience, um, mm. which, you know, the, the article does quote, because that's incredibly dangerous for women in the sense that it takes away a lot of their power and their agency um, and their ability to, you know, uh, save and spend their own money when you stretch things out. So I think, I think you know, being really careful around your words is important. And also, if caring for your partner is how you derive a sense of value and meaning and productivity, then, you know, whether you're 1950s, you know, wife or trad wife or, you know, your 2020 wife, 
um, for husbands. Either way, it's so important that you set expectations around things because otherwise you're going to be taken for granted before you know it and that level of satisfaction that you get out of it is completely going to dwindle. Um, and, you know, and further to your point, Georgie, when you were talking about doing a survey and, and probably finding that most women are going to want their partners to actually do housework, I think there's a, a survey on the fact that women find men incredibly sexy when they do so as well. So there are other benefits there too. Mm. I think also there is a danger in romanticising you know, concepts like the 1950s, you know, and pretending that it was a really simple time and that everything was much easier. Because I think the reality is, at, at the time, that was really difficult for a lot of women. But also then you look at the consequences that stem from that. And we mm. know now in Australia, mm. women over 50 are the fastest growing group of homeless people. And that is directly linked to income and, and, and the ability to earn an income. And if, if you do fall into the mould of being the 1950s housewife in the strictest sense that you're not earning money, you make yourself incredibly vulnerable. Mm, mm. You set yourself up for limited opportunities and, Mm. yeah. Okay, well, moving on now, so to uh, sexism in the startup sector. So, um, completely different topic and it has come from a piece on Smart Company that was published uh, just this week that we also have permission to republish on Women's Agenda. Um, But a bit of background. So, a few weeks ago, there was an announcement from Goldman Sachs declaring it would no longer be uh, taking companies to IPO unless they had at least one woman or, quote, an otherwise diverse, quote, board member involved. That fired up the Sydney startup Facebook group and other places, um, which resulted in a number of interesting comments, including one from uh, the well-known investor who has been on Shark Tank, uh, Steve Banks, who commented that the move was sexist and a load of rot. They're his words. Um, He also continued that it seems you women need positive discrimination to get a look in. I imagine people getting roles under those circumstances must feel super about it. Um, So... This piece that, that's been um, published on Smart Company is, is really good and really worth a read. And I did get to speak to editor uh, Stephanie Palmaderian, who put the piece, who wrote the piece, a little bit earlier today. Um, so, what I might do is I might cross to that interview now and we will chat a little bit more afterwards. Hi, Steph. Thank you for joining us. Written this detailed and excellent piece about sexism in the startup sector and sharing um, numerous stories from your sources and kind of outlining the idea of that we're just not talking about this problem, that we do sort of see, mm-hmm. and you put it, this great way of putting it, that there's these rose-tinted glasses of co-working and kabucha mean that some of the not-so-wholesome behaviour can go under the radar. What, what inspired you to pursue this topic? Partly, I mean, what it all sort of came out from was some of the conversations that have been going on on the um, Sydney Startups Group. And it's, you know, it's not a new thing that when something is posted about um, or like with a a gender-related topic or like that sort of is a women's issue that like some of these people come out, say, like making kind of argumentative conversation and uh, turning it into a debate and it, it can sometimes quite quickly turn a bit toxic. Um, So on the one hand, I was sort of keeping half an eye on that that was going on. At the same time, I had a few women who were involved in that conversation reach out to me and say, like, this is not okay. Um, And it just sort of got me thinking about what what startup culture actually is. And um, so much of the time, 
everyone has this, like I say, like this rose-tinted view of everything. And you like to think that it's kind of forward-thinking and, and progressive. And the vast, vast majority of people in the industry are exactly like that. But um, there is just this sort of underlying thing, and it sort of seems to come to light through that whole debacle. Um, and then once I started asking people about it, they were coming through with stories and then saying, oh, like, do you know what? I know a woman who's had an experience. I'll put you in touch with her. And then she would tell me another story and then put me in touch with someone else. And then, like, it sort of snowballed from there, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, some women have shared comments under their name and and, and talking about their startup as well. But um, obviously Uh a a lot of women are not uh, sharing their name. Uh, Did you sense a bit of a reluctance to talk to you about it? And I guess, I mean... What do you think might be behind some of that reluctance? Which I know I can take a few guesses as to why, but um, <laughs> it, it does sort of feel that people want to, like you say, sweep this under the carpet, pretend it's not happening and that everything's positive and happy days and nice T-shirts. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of women have these experiences and, and then they basically don't want to have them again. So like some people... Um, have had trouble raising funding or have had bad experiences mm. with investors and I think they don't want to put their name to those experiences because they might want to raise again in the future and they don't want to have this kind of tainted reputation um which is completely understandable but also really tragic I think yeah yeah and I mean some of the I mean the examples really that they cover a, a wide uh, range of things occurring um just really mm. really severe we're talking I mean online abuse death threats that sort of thing happening across social yeah. media um to just I mean toxic misogyny to uh being uh, criticized um unfairly to making assumptions about whether women are having children or whether they'll be able to manage their startup after they have a baby and um people mm. suggesting that they'd even hide that they were pregnant when pitching and would would opt to, yeah. to pitch um online instead of in person. Um, I guess what were some of the more surprising things that you came across? Um, some of those we've, we've heard before, unfortunately, um, but mm-hmm. was there anything particularly new that really, from, from your point of view, was just really shocking? Um, I, I think the point, um, one of the, the stories that was anonymous was a woman who um, was kind of so affected by this that she quit her startup and and um what actually because she had a a nervous breakdown and Mm. I just think that's like the fact I think we can talk about it a lot and we can sort of share issues and a lot of people speak about it sort of in a hypothetical but it's like that's as bad as it can get and it's really you know it's not only putting people putting women out of the startup industry it's also like genuinely damaging their mental health um yeah and I think as well I went into it sort of assuming that women were going to say to me like oh I don't like I don't talk about it because um you know I don't want to damage my reputation and I don't want to damage my um, chances of getting funding in the future um but actually all of them mentioned mental health and all of them said that sometimes they don't want to get involved in the argument just because it's it's so draining yeah and it's you know, it's it's not only time consuming to have these arguments. You also like find yourself the um, you know the recipient of all this abuse. And sometimes you know, I can completely understand that it's you know you'd rather just you know carry on with your life than than sort of try to educate people who don't want to be educated. Yeah. And and yeah. you know put yourself in the firing line. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what you say about that, um, it makes you also wonder how many of these stories that we, we don't know and how many women have left yeah. this sector and gone on to do something else because of yeah. these things occurring that we, we may never know about. Yeah. Or, or even how many women and are put off from even, you know, joining the sector in the first place if they see these Facebook comments or see what's being said across social media and elsewhere. Well, yeah, and this, the startup and tech sector sort of already has a bit of a, a tech bro reputation. You know, you can see, like, from the outside, women might feel like that's not a space for them. Um, and whereas, like, there are a lot of very supportive women in the space and there are sort of mm. women's um, organisations and things, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's understandable that it's daunting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're right, there are great women's organisations, there are great female role models, particularly um, yeah. you mentioned the fact that there are two women heading unicorns in Australia. Yeah. Um, and um, from here, where do you hope this conversation will go? I mean, I might say that first of all, but also maybe in the context of what has been the reaction so far to the story. I know it's only been published in the past 24 hours or so, mm. but what's been the immediate reaction and where, where do you hope it will go? The, the immediate reaction has been overwhelmingly positive, actually, which is really nice to see. Mm. Like some of the, um, some people have been sharing it on Twitter and um, like the, there's been a conversation on, on LinkedIn around it. Um, I believe it was posted to the Sydney Startups Group, but I have not ventured to look there yet. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, but what I hope, and like it will take more than just like one article, but I hope that people will start talking about it and, more than anything, I hope that um, kind of eyes will be opened and that sort of people who do come from a place of privilege can sort of look at it and be like, okay, this isn't something that women are making up. Like, this is a real, like, a real issue and sort of try to begin to start understanding and through that understanding start to sort of make it better. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for putting so much into that story and we'll be no encouraging everybody to read it and to share it and to write positive things <laughs> about what's going on and so proactive things in the comments as well. So thank you so much for chatting to us as well, Steph. No, thank you. It's a pleasure and thank you for your support. Okay, so that was Steph there and, I mean, uh, Shivani, I know that you are going to have a really interesting perspective on this given uh, your work in the startup world and in the startup community. So, Shivani, yeah. what – I mean, going back to that initial piece, I mean, what were some of your initial reactions after reading it? Look, I read it and I'm, I'm sorry to say that there wasn't many surprises in there for me. I, I sort of read it and got it along and went, yep, that's pretty much it. Um, I agree there's a lot of sexism in the startup space. I mean, the startup space isn't alone. There's – a lot of sexism in corporate Australia as well. There's a lot of sexism around the world. Um, and, and that is starting to now become more and more obvious, thankfully, because of the fact that there are now more successful women who are getting out there and actually talking about this. Um, and hence, you know, we are here having this conversation. And I think that when it comes to mental health and women opting out, I can, I can personally see that because it is a tough environment to be in. It's constantly sink or swim. You're constantly having to prove yourself. The term of you're only as good as your last deal, your last sale, your last win is always apparent. Um, and when you've got that and the stakes are so high and you're going through the roller coaster ride that is startup and business world anyway, and you combine that with having to almost negate who you really are, which is your 
a woman. You're a businesswoman out in this world trying to make it as you should be. Um, and, and you shouldn't have to hide the fact that you're a woman. But you sort of find yourself trying to negate it in many ways. And I'll give you an example. You'll get questions on, um, you know, when, what are your plans to have children? And so you'll find yourself going, oh, no, 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 no children for me right now, even though, you know, you probably want to have children now or sometime close to the future. So you find yourself constantly giving answers that are possibly in conflict with where you're, where you're actually at. I, um, I, until very recently, used to get questions like, uh, okay, well, I can see you're married, a ring on your finger. How supportive is your husband? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, male founders simply do not get asked those questions. Um, I know of another, you know, male co-founder, um, not, not, not my own co-founder, but another male co-founder who's just had a child, um, you know, loads of well wishes and congratulations, but not one question, how are you going to juggle your startup? And I know that if that was, you know, a, a female founder, there would have been a lot of questions around that. Um, and, and this founders, you know, just brought in, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of investment. So it is a very different world. So it's, it's no wonder that you talk about, and you know, the, the mental health impacts because you're constantly, you know, ducking and weaving through these questions, trying to show you that you're the smartest, you're tough. Um, but yeah, you're a real life human who's possibly going to want to have children who possibly is or isn't in a relationship and how you have to navigate that. So you've got this extra layer on top. Um, look, the big caveat that I want to add to this, though, is that startup world is hard anyway, whether you're a man or a woman. Mm. Um, but yes, it is harder for a woman. But what would make it easier is if we all had a better way to educate ourselves on how to get around, you know, startup life and how to actually actively get funding. Because we know that, you know, less than 2% of the VC money um, actually goes to women-led startups. So, um, so we actually need to have a better better sense of know-how on how to actually raise money. Um, and I, I really learned this when I raised funding for both my businesses. And I was talking to my friends about it, and they were all gobsmacked at how I possibly could have raised that money. And it was like there was this secret sauce to it, whereas for me, it was just following a formula. Um, and I found myself talking about concepts like what is pre-seed funding? What is seed funding? What is Series A funding? How do you value your business? Mm. And it made me realize that knowledge is confidence and knowledge is power. And so, you know, as, as a woman CEO, it's, it's how I personally, you know, circumnavigated all of that. I've made myself go on a mission and get all the knowledge I possibly could. And that's given me the confidence to be able to, you know, build the startups that I have. Yeah, that's so true. And I know that I've had those conversations with you, Shivani, and I've sat there across the table and just been in absolute awe at what you've achieved, particularly in terms of raising money. And I think, I mean, I can see maybe a space to for us to even publish some, some pieces around this even just – um, and maybe you could even help us with that, but just how to get started and just um, dissecting some of these terms, which can be an immediate turn off for some. I know it has been for me at times, particularly. So, and that's one aspect. So you think there's so many pieces to this. It is, it is such an exhausting world that is up and down constantly. So to throw in uh, calling out sexism along the way, you can understand why uh, some women would be reluctant to do so. Oh, absolutely, because you just don't want to ruin your chances, right? I mean, as it is, you're already trying to play down the woman's factor because people are asking you questions. The last thing you want to do is go, oh, by the way, you know, this is a really sexist, sexist thing, mm. <laughs> and have even more people have their back up against you because, you, you know, we just know that people get defensive with this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and that, you know, for that reason, thank God there are female 
orientated VCs now, um, and um, and there are you know so many sort of female friendly sort of startup communities to really help women you know get through this. Um, but but again, you know, if I was circumnavigating it again, I, I would be going out there and saying, you know, I want you to back me because I'm a, I'm a woman CEO, and you know, not enough women are getting funding because again, I, I know I'm going to get that back up. I would go in with the knowledge and the confidence and really know what are the top key things that I need to be talking about and then make sure that I'm even more impressive as, as a result of it. So I, I think knowing the nuances will make you even more powerful, even more powerful than a male CEO if you can just get that part right because there are some supporters out there too. You just you just need to find them. Yeah, and that, yes, it's an unfair world that we live in. And, and I think that's important to note is that there are a lot of supporters. There's a lot of really great groups out there that are supporting female entrepreneurs. There's a lot of networks that you can join. There, there are a lot of places to get this. And, and the article also notes that, you know, in Australia we've got great female role models as well, particularly, you know, two um, unicorn startups that uh, are co-founded by women. Um, Georgie, yeah. one thing that also gets brought up in that piece is the term mompreneur mm. and we've been over this many times in the past it's still there but one of the founders that Steph quotes talks about the fact that she's can be considered a mompreneur which can imply that you're working on this part-time mm. that it's a, a side hustle mm. um, that it's even a hobby or something and she's like that that's just not the reality and yet those taglines keep getting applied yeah I think that that label just undermines a person's um, authority, I suppose, in the space because mumpreneur, mm-hmm. and we have spoken about this a lot and we have always found that label problematic because no father is ever called a dadpreneur mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that there are plenty of entrepreneurs who are dads with children mm-hmm. but it's just that's not seen as the central defining characteristic of them. Whereas mm-hmm. when you describe someone as a mumpreneur, you are very clearly putting the that person's mothering ahead of anything else that they do. And I think it immediately conjures this image of a woman who might be having a side project cooking, making cupcakes on the side rather than actually this is a serious entrepreneur who's, who's running a business. Yes, she might have children, she might be a mother, but that's not the sort of defining characteristic. And I think that one of the other complicating factors here, and I was listening to everything you said, Shivani, agreeing and thinking the other thing that makes it so much more difficult is that when you have got players like um, the Shark Tank judge coming out saying that any attempt to level the playing field is sort of um, is sexist, know, positive is discrimination yeah. and it's mm. sexist because mm. there's so little scope to actually see this as a legitimate problem. And I think anyone who still uses the label mumpreneur is, is in that same camp of thinking there's no problem, there is no sexism in this space, men and women are equal um, but actually that's not the reality at all. We know that's not the reality and these little things contribute, I think, to that disconnect between men and women. Mm. Mm. Do you have any final thoughts on that, Shivani? What's your feeling about the term mompreneur? I mean, I know that, that some women might choose to call themselves that as well. Mm. What, what's yeah. your, your take, Shivani? Look, everyone should have the freedom of choice of how they want to you know, call themselves and classify themselves and so forth, but... I'm, I'm really with you on this. I would never call myself, I mean, I don't have children, so I physically couldn't call myself a mompreneur. Unless, you know, you can count my cat, who I love and, you know, do call my child constantly. Maybe, maybe you're a catpreneur. Um, yeah, catpreneur. You know, I could, I could kind of run with that. Um, but no, I, I wouldn't. Um, and I wouldn't call myself a fempreneur um, or um, a boss babe or any of those things um, because my, my womanhood has got nothing to do 
with my capabilities as an entrepreneur and neither should a man's manhood for that matter. It is simply about our skills, our capabilities, our experience, our tenacity, our passion, all of those things. In fact, most of this is about our sense of position. Um, and so what does, you know, being a female have to do with that or being mum have to do with that? Um, and I think that we need to extend that also to being careful with language on how we treat everyone else as well as our employees. So I've got, um, you know, two uh, two new employees that have started with us at Upstreet just this week um, and, uh, and, and they're two young women. And I make it a point to when I refer to them to call them women. I never call them girls. Um, and, and I think that's very important because when you say, oh, you know, and can you take the girl through this? You're instantly infantilizing them. I can never say that word properly, but you're mm. making them into infants. Yeah. Um, to put it in another way. Um, and again, you're putting their gender ahead of what they can do. And it's the same with mompreneur. Um, you, you don't do that, um, with the guys. You would say guys, right? Um, you, or you would, you would say men, but you don't, you don't say boys. Um, and again, you know, you're not taking away any of that agency through the language that you're using. So I think it's so important that people get really conscious about what they say um, and get really conscious about how they're empowering or disempowering themselves, even if they are choosing to use those words for themselves as a matter of fact. Okay, and on that note, I'm going to move to tennis. Mm. And I'm going to do something that might be a little bit hypocritical to this conversation because I want to talk about Serena Williams and I want to talk about Kim Clijsters and I want to talk about them in the context of being mothers as well as being professional tennis players. So, um, yeah, interesting <laughs> pivot in conversation. But um, I say it in the context of, um, of well, first of all, Kim Clijsters, a former Australian Open winner, has returned to the WTA Tour for the first time since 2012 and I read this story today and I was like oh it's been that long and then I kind of read a little bit further into it and I did see that she has three kids which I I, I did think was quite remarkable to be returning to that level of tennis um she's age she's 36 or 37 Mm. um three kids and then obviously that gets you thinking about um Serena Williams who has made um who has returned after taking parental leave herself and also as um Shivani, you noted, is that what Serena Williams is doing with some of her investments and making really strong and powerful investments in women-led businesses, particularly in women's health. So some of those were, there was uh, a business around pre and postnatal health exercises, I believe it was, one called the Mum Project, which is aiming to connect um, mums to various careers as well and to help women back into the workforce. Have you seen anything else from from Serena Williams that you've particularly noticed there, Shivani? So the the Mum Project was certainly the latest one that, that I noticed and really caught my eye. Um, and and the, the reason why I loved that so much was because it was so authentically Serena. Um, you know, she is certainly no stranger to calling out gender inequality wherever she sees it. She certainly cops a lot of slack for it. People expect her to be a good sport about um, gender inequality that happens to her because she's in such a privileged position. Um, and certainly that should not be the case. And, and, you know, and she just as anyone should be calling it out. But also, you know, she's um, you know, a very proud mum, and she's been talking about that and, um, and sharing her journey along the way. And so that investment in the mum project um, really sort of stood out to me, but also because she's going to end up being a pretty strong stakeholder, uh, you know, share equity-wise in that business. Now, I don't know how much of a stake she's actually going to take, um, but I'll tell you, you know, why that's, why that's good news for this startup. 
um, because, you know, her with her name, we're talking about Mum Project right now. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and countless media articles will be doing so by the end of yeah. the day. Um, and so it means that the amount of attention and the amount of this lift that she's going to be able to give this startup through her name um, and her funding behind it is, is incredible. And also, you know, partnering with her husband as well, the startup firm that, that he has, you know, um, sorry, the venture capitalist firm that he has as well, you know, putting money into these projects. So I, I, I just think it's, it's phenomenal. Like I see her doing things that are very authentically her. Um, and, of course, women end up benefiting from that. So, so that was the, the next latest one. And, sorry, no, I, there is another one. There's a home fitness company yeah. as well. I think it's called Tonal, uh, another mm. one that she's um, invested in too. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about the mum project. So I hadn't heard about that previously. But what when, as soon as I thought saw that, I did see, think of Australia. I mean, there, there are Australian equivalents in that space. And you think about how... Serena Williams giving that sort of backing over in the US would put some more attention on those sorts of startups in Australia as well and potentially attract more funding for them or more attention for them at least. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing the Australian community really lacks. I mean, if you think about, we were just talking about smart company just a little while ago and we said, you know, isn't it great that we've got role models, two female role models? <laughs> I mean, two female and unicorn role models. Yeah, so there's plenty true. of others. Yeah. That, that is true. There are plenty of others. But we need more female unicorns. Um, we need, but we also need more female, um, you know, entrepreneurs and, you know, celebrities and so forth who are then investing in other female-led businesses in Australia. So I think if there's mm. anything that I really want to ignite in the Australian community, it's that, you know, that culture of, um, of investing, that culture of backing other people that you really believe in um, and, and, you know, bringing some of that good money, some of that celebrity um, over into Australia. I'd love to see that happening here as well. Mm, yes, absolutely. All right, okay, so moving on to our final segment where we each share something that has been on our minds over the past few days. So, Georgie, I might start with you. Yeah, I have been thinking a lot about childcare which mm. is not an uncommon position for me. I think I about it every week when I look at my bank account. So, yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I, yeah, having our eldest child is nearly 10 and when I think about the vast sums of money we've spent over the last decade, yeah. it's just best not to think about mm. it. But what, the reason I've been thinking about it is that there was a terrific piece um, by an academic that was on the conversation that we've republished on Women's Agenda that basically looks at the fact that really we need the government to start funding childcare Um, and preschool in the same way that it funds primary school because in Australia despite the fact the government has spent a huge amount of money in the last um, 10 years on subsidies it hasn't actually translated to any meaningful reduction in the cost to parents similarly it hasn't translated to an increase in the wages of the educators that work in these places and one of the reasons for that is that um, it is very fragmented and there, there is a mixture of not-for-profit organisers who run it. There's, there are some um, for-profit corporations in the space. But ultimately, if it was treated like we treat primary school, in, at which point every, you know, for every child who's turning five or is five, there's going to be a kindergarten spot for them in their local primary school, wherever it is, mm. and that'll be free. Um, Childcare is not like that. And when you look at the return on investment, so for every dollar a government spends... Um, on quality early childhood education, the return is two dollars mm. in terms of economic benefits, the health benefits, the developmental benefits for those children. Um, 
And I mean, I've, I've been saying this for a long time, but it is an absolute no-brainer. I think that we've had enough sort of tinkering around the edges of the um, provision of childcare in Australia and it's just not working. Mm. Um, and I think there is scope to improve it. Yeah, yeah. I think more, um, more emphasis on the benefits to children because we don't actually often get that argument across. We're often looking at the workplace benefits and the ability for women to return to work. But yes. There's that whole other piece of it. Yeah. Um, I might go to myself. So me, I've had sleep on my mind over the last like 25 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> having been a lifelong insomniac who struggles with insomnia uh, at various stages in my life. It's not every night. It comes in waves. Um, but there is a really great piece that has been published by The Guardian by um, on their Observer magazine in the UK in which uh, looks at this uh, looks at sleep for women and um, the headline is something like you know I'm lying awake at 3am is anybody else awake with me which I just instantly read that headline and I think Yep, I understand that. So, And the idea of struggling and thinking, am I going to medicate tonight? Will I take a sleeping pill? How is that? All these internal battles that we have night to night around sleep and the added challenge of um, having young children who are then waking up at odd hours and the idea that you just as you get to sleep after hours of trying, you might often then get a toddler waking you up. So I thought the piece was excellent. I've seen it shared around a lot. Um, we will publish it with the notes for this podcast as well if you are somebody who struggles with insomnia. And the piece does look at how insomnia, it, it is it creeping up for more women, um, particularly in their 30s, and it, it, it suggests that it is that idea of, um, you know, more of us are in the workforce as we're having kids and everything kind of comes together along with the unpaid work that we're putting in at home and how that contributes to to lying awake at night thinking about your many many to-dos that are on your list so that's on my mind Shivani Mm. well um Angela I'm really sorry to hear about your insomnia but I have to say thank you so much for speaking to me about your sleeping or waking habits because you were the one who inspired me to wake up much earlier than what I (laughs) already do now so, um, I, I love that I inspire people but it's only because I can't sleep at that time so I just you know <laughs> the idea of having other people with me in those weird hours of the morning but they are actually quite well, wonderful you, you've got mm. me now yeah you, you've got me now so for our listeners benefit um, Angela has inspired me to wake up at 4am every day <laughs> which I have now been doing since the beginning <laughs> of 2020 and uh, have done Today. So we're, you know, and I'm still talking, so it's obviously working out okay. <laughs> and what do you do in those early hours? I uh, I meditate. No, I feed my cat first. He always comes first. Yeah. And then I meditate. And then once I've done that, I immediately go and do at least an hour of deep work. Um, something that, you know, means that I can push a rock off my plate and I get a great level of satisfaction from it. Uh, and then at 5.45, I get myself ready to get to the gym and at 6, I'm at the gym. Wow. So by 7.30 in the morning, I find that I've just conquered some massive things. If I've pushed it, if I've managed to push a rock off my plate work-wise, I've meditated and I've gone to the gym. I mean, sometimes I go, you know what, I could just go back to bed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, that's but, the thing. You, know, if you, you feel so accomplished. Yeah, and getting that that one hour, and especially if you really target it at getting like the worst thing off your plate for that day. So the thing that you're really going to yeah. put off that's just going to get increasingly difficult as you face the decision fatigue later on. It does. It is, it is great. It is a good feeling by 8am or so to think, 
what you've done. Yeah. And by yeah. contrast, it's not a good feeling to be sitting here as a non 4am waker and think, wow, at, what I've achieved at 7.30 is very, very little compared to what you two have been doing oh, yeah. for three I, and a half hours. I, I would like to no- – I would prefer to have the um, – the ability to sleep well yeah. Look, over the ability is, to wake up early. Sleeping is probably my superpower. I'm great. Yeah. I've I, had a lot of physical problems in my life. Have. Not sleeping. I think Ariana Huffington will agree with you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it is a superpower. And if, if you can get it, that is a wonderful thing. But Shivani, what, what has been on your mind um, at four o'clock in the morning? Uh, on my mind at, uh, at four o'clock in the morning, not sure. In the morning, but, you know, my husband and I have had quite a lot of chats about this. Um, Dr. Brene Brown came out recently, and, of course, I, I love her. You know, I'm sure many of the listeners love her too. And and um, she talked about, you know, this 80-20 rule in relationships, saying that, you know, the, the 50-50 rule is just, you know, a load of bullshit. And for her, it's really 80-20. Usually in, a relationship, in any part of the relationship during their lives, um, one person will end up putting 80% of the work and the other one 20 So this push and pull. And I thought that was a really, of course, you know, true to Dr. Brene Brown's form, a really intelligent, insightful way of looking at things. But it really got me reflecting on on my relationship with my husband. And, um, of course, I, I run Remarkable Woman. I run Upstreet. I've got lots of interests. Uh, you know, hosting this podcast with you incredible women is, is one of them. And, um, and, you know, my husband and I have had this really open conversation recently, you know, him also running his own business, that, actually work for us is really 80%. And when we both admitted that to each other, we both ended up letting go of a whole lot of guilt and really just acknowledging and breathing into that. But work ends up taking 80% of our lives because we love it and we enjoy it. And we both went, and that's okay. Um, And then out of the 20% that's left in our lives, we still need a little bit of for us. We still need, I still need Shivani time. He still needs Ashley time. Um, And that's okay. And then, What's left over from that, when we do give that to each other, it's really high quality, it's really soulful, it's really connected because there's this fine line between guilt and resentment and you want to make sure that you don't fall foul either way. Um, so when I read that line about, you know, Brene Brown, it made me reflect on my own relationship and I thought, I think it's just so important for couples to get really honest about the way that they do life and the way that they do their own sort of work-life balance and, um, and you know, sort of just take away the shame from it, whatever works for you. And anything that can remove some guilt from your plate, I think, is an excellent thing. Mm. And yes. also those false sort of barriers, I guess. If, if you are working for whatever reason under this assumption that it should be 50-50 between sort of work and life mm. outside of work. But the reality, if it's different, I think there is huge value in sort of dismantling that expectation. Yeah, and that it's okay. And that it will change. Yeah. It can it, – it's yeah, dynamic. It will shift and change yeah. at different points in your life. All right. Well, on that note, we will close. Thank you, Shivani. Thank you, Georgie, once again. So that's it for us today. The Women's Agenda podcast is a production of Agenda Media. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. It really, really helps. And we're really trying to build the profile of this podcast at the moment. Also a reminder that you can go and check out all the stories that we're talking about in the notes. And a lot of these stories are also on Women's Agenda Um, which you'll find on our homepage or somewhere very close by. And we also put out our daily newsletter every day just before or just after lunchtime, depending on how we're going. Thank you.